All right. Well, grateful to be with you guys here this Sunday morning. Uh, our four-year-old son, Roman, he's a lot of fun and he is hyper-competitive. Uh, he's just like me. The, 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 the tension when you're very competitive and you're not very athletic is just it's a lifelong struggle. So I'm praying that he is more gifted than I am athletically. But anyway, because of that, everything we do is a competition. And, you know, he's four years old, and so I let him win often. And you would think after so many little mini soccer games and so many mini hockey games where he always wins by just one point, he might realize something's going on here, but he has no idea. And so we play all the time. And then he loves to race. Like, we'll run up to his room, see who gets there first. Or we'll do this game. We put our hands together and, like, we'll push each other and see who's stronger. And he wins most of the time, which is fine. He's four. I'm happy to let him win. I'm even happy for him to celebrate. The problem then becomes is that he is never content just to be happy. He then always, and when I say always, I mean always, says something like this, Daddy, I'm faster than you. Or Daddy, I'm stronger than you. At which point it's like, okay, buddy, I can only take so much. And so I always respond to him by saying, no, you're not. Like, I, I just, you're not. I'm sorry. And then he says, yes, I am. To which I'm like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. And then he'll say, after we do this a couple times, he goes, yes, I am because I beat you to my room. I'm, see, I, this ju- like it's just happened. Or like, I just pushed you over. Like, it's like, see, and it's like, I can't be like, well, I let you do it. I can't do that yet, right? And so I'm like, I'm like I just say, okay, buddy. And then that's, that's it, right? And I share that story because it's interesting. It's one thing to win. It's another thing to kind of keep pushing it and to keep celebrating in your face. And so today, as we continue our, story, our, our walk through the gospel of Mark, we're going to uh, come across what I think is a real tension if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning. The question that we are going to look at this morning is this. How can we pursue righteousness without becoming self righteous? How can we desire to follow Jesus, to become more like him, to become more grace-filled, uh, to obey him, to pursue holiness in our life, to learn more about him? How can we do that, which is a worthy goal if you're a follower of Jesus? Yet at the same time, as we do these things, not look down on, uh, condemn, make fun of, belittle people who maybe are not yet where we are. How do we do this thing that's really good, but stay humble and grace-filled? And so to define our terms, just so we're on the same page, these might not, might not be the di- dictionary definition, but it's for what we're going for this morning. Here's how you could define righteousness. You could define righteousness as becoming like Jesus. So someone who's righteous is holy, is perfect, is just. None of these things that, that, we, that we strive for, but we cannot attain Jesus was the only perfectly righteous one who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so as we pursue Jesus... We hopefully are becoming more righteous in our life. And so righteousness is becoming like Jesus. And then you could define self-righteous as this, uh, condemning people who are not like you. So how do we, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, pursue Jesus and become more like Jesus and yet still be compassionate, kind, grace-filled, and loving, just like Jesus was, to people who are not like you? How can we follow Jesus and maybe try to avoid some of the pharisaical hypocrisy and judgment that Jesus condemned so often as we're reading about in the book of Mark? And so that is what we're looking at this morning. How can we become like Jesus without condemning people who are not like us or who are not like Jesus. That's what lays before us. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If not, there's a black one around you or you can scan the QR code. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We have been going through the gospel of Mark for a while now. We are in the last week of Jesus's 
life. Uh, Mark uh, commits a lot of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. And so today, even if you're new with us, we're on Tuesday of what is called Passion Week. So uh, early, early Friday morning is when Jesus is going to be tried and condemned and ultimately crucified. And so what we see on the last week of his life where he enters into the temple on Sunday with his disciples, uh, and he's caused a lot of problems. The religious leaders don't like him. They don't want to write to ensue. It's passion or it's a, a Passover. So there's hundreds of thousands of Jews in the in the temple or in Jerusalem, and so a lot of people like Jesus, and so they're trying to find ways to arrest him uh, and to, without causing a scene and try to find some legal way to say, hey, no, this guy's a bad guy. And so what we've seen the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus has been confronted uh, by various religious leaders and scribes who are trying to trap him, who are trying to condemn him, who are trying to uh, get him to admit to something so they can arrest him without causing a scene. And today, uh, we're going to read the ending of really Tuesday, where Jesus now, after confronting and answering all the religious leaders, now has a few words of his own to say. And so here's what we begin, uh, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Here's what it says. Again, how can we pursue righteousness without becoming self-righteous? That's our aim. He says this, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, so he's in the temple in Jerusalem, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Now, you might be like, what in the world did he just say? So let me just explain things for a second here. Jesus essentially is raising the question of who is the Messiah, the one who's supposed to save God's people. Who is he going to be? Is he going to be like King David? And if you're not much sure about Israelite history, King David was one of the greatest kings of Israel where uh, the whole country was unified. It was prosperous. And so they're waiting for the Messiah who's going to come from the line of David to rescue God's people and set up peace on earth. So is he, from, is he the son of David or is he from the lineage of David? Or is he the Lord over David, right? The great king. What is the Messiah going to be? Is he just from the line of David or is he greater than David? And so what Jesus does here is he quotes from Psalm 110 for two minutes. If you can put your Bible nerd hats on with me, I just want to explain something if you can track with me. He quotes here from Psalm 110. You might be familiar with this passage because Bible trivia, this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Now, originally, this is where we're going to nerd out just for a second. Uh, originally, King David wrote Psalm 110, and it began to be used as a, essentially a coronation hymn that was sung or chanted whenever a new Israelite king was placed on the throne. Uh, it was essentially kind of like a, a prayer and uh, that God would lead the new king. Now, we miss this in our English translations because it says, the Lord declared to my Lord. But in Hebrew, you have two different words there. It actually says the Lord, or it says Yahweh, which is God. It says, declare to my Lord, and the word that they use there is Adonai. And what, the, what it's really literally saying here is that God himself is declaring to the king, right? And so for Israel, it was a symbolically saying that this new king was inducted as God's vessel to lead Israel and was seated symbolically at God's right hand. Now, one of the things that made Israel distinct from all other ancient cultures is that they did not believe that their king was actually God or a son of God. So that's not what it's saying. It's just saying that God has placed this new king on the throne, and we're hoping that he's going to lead us to peace and prosperity. 
The problem, however, was in 586 BC, the Israelites were essentially, the monarchy was destroyed. They were put into exile, never to have their own king again. And so Psalm 110 uh, began to be, uh, for lack of a better word, maybe reappropriated, re reappropriated. And the rights of the king were frequently talked about as the rights of the Messiah. Or in other words, the original Isra Israeli monarchy was a shadow or a preparation of what would ultimately happen when the real final Messiah would come, which is that there is no more enemies and no more peace. And so this, this psalm began to be a prayer that God would send his Messiah to rescue him. So here's the question. The Lord, which is God, said to my Lord, which they associated with the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The problem is the Messiah here is obviously superior to King David, and he's not merely a descendant of King David because he's going to put everybody under his feet. And so it's not that the Messiah wasn't also a, a descendant of King David. Jesus was, and he affirms this. He certainly was. But the point is that the Messiah is more than that. He's not just a son of or from David. He is greater than him. And here's where the paradox comes in. Because it is a strange thing for a father, in this case David, to refer to a son or one of his descendants as Lord, right? Typically, a younger generations would call an authority figure Lord. It's like today when we use the word sir, right? You would call maybe someone older than you or maybe a boss sir. You typically wouldn't call a child or someone under than you uh, sir. But yet here in Psalm 110, David is declaring uh, he, he's going to call this authority figure Lord, um, and that this authority figure is going to do things that he could not do. And he's going to literally sit at God's right hand and have all of his powers and all of his privileges. And so here's the thing in Psalm 37, if you're still with me, if David calls the coming Messiah, my Lord, how can he only be his son? That's what Jesus is saying. The Messiah can't just be the son of the, of, out of the lineage of King David. He has to be greater than him because David is submitting himself to him. And so really what's happening here is Jesus is kind of unlocking a riddle about who the Messiah is. He's not just from King David, he's greater than King David. And to maybe give us a sense of what was going on here, it's kind of like if you ever read a riddle, right, and you hear one and you're like, I don't really get it, but then someone explains it to you and it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And so I have some riddles for you, right? For example, just think with me. Before Mount Everest, the tallest mountain on earth, was discovered, what was the highest mountain on earth? Oh, come on, you're too smart. I thought that was good. If you're like, what did they say? Mount Everest, right? Because before, however you measure a mountain, I have no idea. Before they discovered how tall Mount Everest was, it was still the tallest mountain, right? And so that's what kind of is happening. Or how about this one? Hopefully you don't know this one. I should have picked harder ones. Um, how many letters are in the alphabet? Okay, good. You're like, I don't know. You might think it's 26, and there are 26 letters in the whole alphabet, but the word alphabet only has 11 letters. And it's like, oh, okay, so you, that's not that good of a riddle. You should have picked better ones. But you see, you're like, oh, that makes sense. And that's kind of what is happening here. He's trying to reveal something to them that they've read, that this is me, the Messiah is here, and I'm not just like, the, like King David or his descendants. I am greater than. And so today, again, if we're looking at the question, how can we pursue righteousness without becoming self-righteous, I've got a Baptist sermon today for you. I've got three points, okay? Here's the first one. We need to recognize who Jesus is, or recognize Jesus for who he is. Recognize Jesus for who he is, and this will help us understand that we are not all that, that we are not over all things, but he is. Now, here's the thing. This is actually pretty easy to do 
until he challenges you and your idols and your desires. Like, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, okay, I'm not God. I didn't create all these things. God must exist. This Jesus guy seems pretty cool. I'll say, you know, I'll follow him or I'll, I'll think he's the one. That's, that's awesome. But then it gets really hard when he starts to challenge your preferences and your desires and your wants. Are you really, re- really willing to submit yourself to him? And we've talked about this, if you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, is that the Israelites also want to submit themselves to a Messiah. The problem is Jesus is not going to act how they want him to act, right? They assume that the king of Israel is going to suppress all of his enemies, which of course it has to be by force, because how else would you enforce peace on earth? But the reality is that Jesus has come to open up the kingdom for all people, not just the Jewish people. And how is he going to do it? Not by force, but by laying down his life. So they have this vision of a Messiah, but Jesus is not going to fulfill their vision. He's going to fulfill the vision or his vision of what the Messiah actually is going to be. And are they willing to submit to him? That's a completely different thing. Now, I don't know, maybe to make this real, uh, recognizing someone for who he is, if you married to your spouse and you knew right away that he or she was the one, would you just raise your hand? If we have anybody that was like, okay, a couple of you, that's, don't be, that's okay, come on, let's be excited about this. Some of you, right? Um, right away, you knew this is the one. Now, for many of us, that wasn't the case. Um, I've shared a little bit of our story. Uh, for when Christina and I met, that was not that we had no idea who each other were. I've shared this before. The first time we met, we were at this uh, college ministry social thing, and there was music playing, and I was dancing because I like to do that. And someone, then one of the staff was like, "Hey, Christina, have you met Dylan?" And I don't remember this incident, so you know, got to take her word for it. Uh, and uh, Christina said that I introduced myself and kept dancing away. I didn't ask her who she was, I'd, and she thought I was rude. And weird. Now, if you had told her, that's your man one day, she'd be like, nah, that ain't it, right? In fact, she originally never wanted to get married, right? And so she's like, well, that's why. If, I, if that's the husband, I ain't doing it, right? Like, she didn't know. And of course, I don't even remember meeting her. So I don't know what's worse. I don't, her, I don't know. But a few months later, we started dating. <laughs> and then a few months after that, again, I, I also don't remember this conversation either. I don't know if I have a problem or what, but this, this one I can believe. I'm one of those people that if I decide to do something, I'm just going to do it. Like I just pretty self-disciplined, whatever. And so she, she says, a few months into dating, we were somewhere at a mall or something and we're talking and I said, I think you're the one. Like I told her that. We're freshmen, we're 18 years old, dating a few months. And she's like, she didn't say this, but she's thinking, bro, I don't even know you. I don't know the one. And so I think she's the one. And then she goes on to dump me twice. Okay? And so she still, right, the next two summers, we got to dump me. Got back together. She dumped me again. Right? She still didn't recognize. Right? Now, eventually, I don't know how it happened. She changed her mind. And now we are together happily ever after with two kids, 11 years, and it's awesome. Right? But at the beginning... Neither one of us would have known what was happening here. And so the challenge for us is not just to read the words of Jesus, but to believe it and to trust it and to submit our lives to him. And when we do that, it helps us fight against self-righteousness because we know that we are not the thing, that we are not great, that we are not amazing, but we know somebody who is. And so we need to recognize Jesus for who he is. That's what he's inviting these people to do. And then he continues, verse 38, and says something else. Mark chapter 12, verse 38, he says this. He also said in his teaching, this is Jesus, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour, widow, devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. 
these will receive harsher judgment. Now, again, remember, Jesus is in the temple, right? This is the pinnacle of Jewish religion and priests and all these sort of things. And so in Jerusalem, to be a scribe is to be someone with authority, to be someone with respect, to be someone up high on the cultural ladder. And he's critiquing the religious leaders now that have been attacking him. Because again, the scribes commanded a lot of respect in Jerusalem, even if you weren't very devout or a big practicing Jew. Again, as we talked about, the temple was not just religious. It was economic. It was power. It was political. You respected these people. Now, the scribes back then, they wore special robes that distinguished them very easily from the rest of the crowds. Um, You were actually expected to rise in the marketplace if you were sitting and they were walking through. You were expected to rise as they came through as a a sign of respect and honor. Um, The best seats in the synagogue were reserved for them so that when they wanted to share, they could stand up in a place where everybody could easily hear them and see them. And so all of these things set them apart. Now, I just want to say this. It's not necessarily that these things are inherently bad. It's not that, again, because a lot of the robes came from some of the priestly garments that they did, and and having the best seats in the synagogue wasn't just to have the best seats, but it's because they would address the crowd. And so, of course, you need to be a place where people can see you. It's not that these things are inherently bad. The problem is that they had been taken advantage of, and they were exploited, and they had these positions of power, and they used them under the guise of piousness to get what they wanted. Right? They would pray publicly ornate prayers just for show and not for God. Instead of using their cultural authority and their prestige and their honor to show people what it was like to befriend or to care for or to spend time with the people who didn't have much money or didn't have much to show for it, they ignored them. They should have used their position to show love, care, and compassion, but they didn't. And so Jesus condemns them. Now, really quick, I just want to have a confession time here. This is also, just so we know, the natural inclination of all of us. It's very simple for us to read the New Testament and read the Pharisees and the religious leaders and be like, well, I'm not them. I don't have their cultural milieu. Like, I don't have their respect, and I'm not a religious leader, and so I'm not like them, and assume that this is just a religious person problem. This is an all of us problem. Or put a second way, again, we're looking at the question, how can we pursue, or sorry, how can we pursue righteousness instead of our own self-righteousness? What am I trying to say? How can we pursue righteousness without becoming self-righteous? Here's another thing that we can consider that we need to pursue the purposes of God over the praise of people. Because this is what Jesus is condemning here. That they are not using in their position of power and prestige for the good of others. They're using it to say, look how amazing I am. You better stand up for me. You better honor me. And if you are a sinner in any way, I will condemn you publicly to show you how much better I am than you. So again, I would say this. Following Jesus is easy, going back to the, the first point, when he has to follow us. Right? Or following Jesus, maybe you could say it this way, is beneficial when we view ourselves as better than. Well, I'm going to follow Jesus and, and be holy and do good things, and I'm going to look down on anybody who doesn't do the things that I think they should be doing. And so we can easily become like these scribes. Now, again, for, again, for us, you say, well, I might not have the cultural prestige of a scribe in Jerusalem, and that might be true. But the challenge for us is to think through how we can view those who think or behave differently than us in the same way as ignorant, as dumb, as not as good as us. Or we can try to impress the people in our camp over faithfully following Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, maybe in your workspace or in your group, maybe you got a hobby that you do with people, whatever it might be, wherever you might find yourself with other people, it's really easy to do things that's going to score me points with the people that I'm around, even if it's not being a faithful follower of Jesus. 
And so again, for the scribes, instead of using their power and authority to serve others, which is what they were supposed to do, many of them were using it to be served by others to make themselves feel better about themselves. And so if we're going to pursue the purposes of God over the praise of people, a question that we can ask ourselves is, how can I use my influence to serve others rather than be served? However big or small you might think your influence is, with your family, with your friend group, with your classmates, with your, with your coworkers, wherever you might find yourself, the question is, how can I use my influence, not to make myself look good, but however small it might be to serve other people? And when we do that, we are certainly pursuing the purposes of God over the praise of people and making ourselves look good. And then Jesus says this. He gives one more teaching in verse 41 of chapter 12. He then says this. Sitting across from the temple treasury, so they're in the temple. The temple treasury was the place that you would go to give your financial offerings. He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Now, again, just some context so we can understand what's going on here in the temple. Again, Jesus is here. He's seeing people bring their financial offerings um, to the temple. Now, again, one of the important functions of the temple was that it also served as a depository. Or maybe for modern language, it also served as a bank. So, again, it wasn't just religious. It was political. It was economic. It was all of these things. And so uh, what people did is they didn't just bring donations or offerings to the temple for the temple. They also, if you were in that area, many of them paid their taxes at the temple. Uh, they had dues at the temple. And they, often, they also used it as like a savings, a savings account. Where you would, again, because you can't put your money, I mean, in the ground, like where you're going to put it. There's not a lot of places. And so if you're wealthy, you could actually store some of your money in the temple. And so it's all these things. And there was this thought that, again, it's a temple. It's a sacred place. So we need a safe place. And so if there's anywhere I'm going to put my money, it's going to be in the temple. And so, again, what's happening here is that, in fact, to show you how important this was, in the first century, there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and he has written that the person who was in charge of the financial administration of the temple was actually the second, import, second in importance only to the chief priest. So the chief priest is the one who's the high priest in charge of all this stuff. The person who's in charge of all the money, even if they're not Jewish, even if they're not in the priestly class or any of these things, because they're in charge of all of this money, they are the second most influential person in the temple, which means in all of Jerusalem. And so again, I know it's a little Bible nerd thing here, but I think it's just helpful for us to understand what was going on. When you would go to the temple to offer up your offering, um, the, the ancient writings tell us that there were 13 different chests, or maybe giving boxes, if you will, where you would drop your money. And so you would go to the temple treasury, a priest or an attending priest would come up to you, they would ask you what your donation is for, they would ask you how much you were donating, and they would inspect your money to make sure the money was real and legit and not some fraud or something that, you know, that couldn't be used. And so then they would direct you to which chest you should actually drop your money in. And if you were close by, which Jesus seems to be here, you could, you could hear these conversations. You could see what was happening. Or you could at least hear as they dropped their money in, you could probably tell by how much clanging there was and, and what the clanging sound like, what type of coin was going on here. So it doesn't tell us how Jesus knew how much she gave, but this is probably how. He might have heard the conversation. He might have heard her, you know, saw where she went to off, give her offering and heard that only two smiley, small little coins hit the bottom when she dropped it. And it says here in our translation, it says she gave two tiny coins. Now, in the Greek, this is the word lepton. Now, a lepton, again, just so we can know, was essentially one sixty-fourth of a day's 
wage. Now, if you're not a math person, like I'm not, it only took me two hours, but I did some math for you. If you make $20 an hour and you work nine hours a day, that's $2.50. And of course, this is before taxes. And the reality is, this is a poor widow. She likely has no job, or if she does have a job, it wasn't, work, it wasn't worth $20 an hour. And so she is literally giving nothing. Right? She's giving nothing. All these rich people are going to the rich people's side. She's going to the poor people's side. And then Jesus says this, based off her offering. Verse 43. He says, summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty and has put everything, it put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so this woman pretty much gives nothing. I mean, literally gives nothing. Like there are times when I'm walking on the church, cleaning up, getting things ready or during the week, and I'll see a dime on the floor. And uh, I'll let you know, I have never seen a dime on the floor in the auditorium and thought, I'm going to pocket that. I've never been tempted. Like, what am I going to do with 10 cents? Nothing. Like, there's literally nothing I'm going to do with 10 cents. It is super easy for me to drop it in our giving box and go in my office and go about my day because it doesn't, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to move the needle. It's not going to help us hardly at all. So I'm like, 10 cents, I am not tempted to steal that at all. Yet, according to Jesus, what this woman is doing, her 10 cent offering, is worth more than what everyone else is giving. Her 10 cent offering that does absolutely, it probably costs more in time for them to count that offering than it does for her to actually give it. Jesus says that her offering is actually better. Why? Because unlike everyone else who is giving out of their excess, she is giving out of her need, right? This woman is actually making a sacrifice. And so again, for us, as we consider how can we pursue righteousness without becoming self-righteous, and if we're even thinking financially, here's one of the things that I think is worth considering. And maybe here's what I would encourage us to do. To sacrifice what you could do for what you can do. Sacrifice what you could do for what you can do. And here's what I mean. Again, as we talk about following Jesus, it is always more about why you do what you do than what you do. He cares about our hearts more than checking off a box or doing a good th- deed or an external action. It's why you're doing it. And so in this case, with this woman, she is giving money for, uh, with no public gain. Uh, and, and he's looking at these rich people who are giving money. When people could hear how much they're giving, they could see it as they're dropping it in the box. But it is not costing them anything. It is not, it's not being faithful. It's easy for them to do it because they have so much. But yet this woman has made a sacrifice while other people... We're making statements. And so I, I may want to put it this way real quick as a side note. Financially speaking, I mean, if you're a New City Church and you've been to our Discover class or your partner here, you know that we, we don't ask you to give 10%. I think uh, you should give to the church that you're a part of. If this is New City, I think you should give financially. If you don't want to give financially here, I think you should be a part of a church that you can be on mission with, and that includes financially. And so one of the things I tell people is, again, because I, t- I think 10% is a great goal. I think you should aspire to it and work towards it, but it's not a box of check. You can give 10% and be unfaithful, and you can be 2% and be faithful, depending on your situation, upbringing, what you know. So it's not about a box. That being said, uh, one of the things I encourage people to consider is this. When it comes to your generosity, again, if you're a follower of Jesus here, I would think of it this way. Uh, is there anything I could have or could do, but I can't or I don't because I'm using that money elsewhere? 
I think this is a good litmus test if you're a follower of Jesus. Is there anything that I don't do or I can't do that I could do, and it's not wrong to do because I have the money to do it, but because of my generosity, I have to can't sacrifice some of those things. And I'm not just mean generosity to the church. It could be to a person in need, a charity, a cause that you think is important. Is there anything that I cannot do uh, because I, or I could do that I cannot do because I'm being generous? You see, in this story, the rich, again, they are giving from their abundance, and Jesus is not impressed because they do not sacrifice their abundance. They still have everything that they want, and their giving does not stop that at all. Again, for us, if we're followers of Jesus and we don't want to become self-righteous, I think being open-handed and trusting the Lord what he's giving us helps us trust him. And is this not what this woman is doing? Is this not a picture of the gospel? That what this woman is doing points to exactly what Jesus is about to do in just a couple of days. Well, he will also give up everything for the good of others. That his perfect life, his death, his resurrection means that you and I can be invited into God's kingdom, not because of who we are or what we've done or our, our society status or how much money we make. That all of us, no matter what we've done, no matter what's happened to us, no matter how much money we have or don't have, all of these things, we are invited into the kingdom because Jesus is offering up himself for us. And what this woman is doing is just an example of what Jesus will do for us, that no matter who you are, what you have done, the invitation is the same. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't have to have all your doubts erased. You could be addicted. You could be depressed. You could be in a very bad way. But Jesus' grace is still offered for you. And so again, the question for us this morning we ask is how can we pursue righteousness? How can we become like Jesus without becoming self-righteous, without condemning others? And we talked about recognizing Jesus for who he is. That'll help that he is Lord that you are not. That we should pursue the purposes of God over the praise of people. That we should pursue what he would want us to do or what makes us look good. That we should sacrifice what we could do for what we actually can do for the difference or the impact we actually can make in the kingdom and other people's lives. Because that will keep us humble and help us trust the Lord as we elevate other people and their needs. And I could say all of that to say, if I could sum it up, here, here's why all this is important. I think here's why Jesus is telling us these things. And it's because we can spread God's kingdom or our kingdom, but not both. At the end of the day, we can be after what we want, our prestige, our money, our looking good, or we can pursue God's kingdom where everybody is given grace, where everybody is given mercy, where even the, the, the down and out are, are is equally as valuable as the rich and famous and powerful, that everybody's equal in God's kingdom. We can spread God's kingdom, or we can spread our kingdom, but we can't spread because here's the thing, right? We need the power of God and the love of God to live out the purposes of God, right? To, do, to really do what Jesus is asking us to do with our lives, oh, we need his grace and we need his power. All these things that we talked about today, they sound good, but without the power of the Spirit to convict us and to lead us, it becomes things that sound good that we cannot do on our own. And so here's my challenge for us this week, that we wouldn't just hear this sermon and say, oh, that sounds really nice, God's kingdom over our kingdom, I'm going to treat people well, we try to be generous, but that we actually posture ourselves in a way that we might be able to experience this happen in our life. And so this week, as we mentioned earlier, is our quarterly prayer and fasting. I think a great way to pursue God's kingdom over our kingdom is to put ourselves in a situation where we are reminded that we need God to move and that we cannot do it on our own. And so we do this uh, once a quarter here at New City Church. Again, you'll get one of these cards on your way out. And here's how this look, works. On one side of the card, it tells you different ways to fast. Now, you can fast all five days and just do liquids if you want to. I'm not even saying that. I'm not even necessarily recommending that. 
Um, you could fast from a food group. You could fast from one meal a day. You could fast for just a couple of 24-hour periods. Whatever it looks like for you to go before the Lord and fast. Now, again, we encourage a dietary fast because in the Bible, fasting was always food-related. And so you can do, you can abstain from social media, TV, that stuff's fine. But if you're able to health-wise, we encourage a simple dietary fast, whatever you think you could actually do on one side. And on the back, we are going to give you five things to pray for. Five things to pray for. Listen, you could do this in two minutes a day, five days a week. And you might be like, that's not a lot of time. Two minutes a day is better than nothing. And you have no idea what God might do. And so here's what you, you can put on the screen. Uh, on the back of this card, there are the five things um, to, to pray about. If you're watching our live stream, if you want to take a picture of the screenshot, you can do that. Or if you want to do that as well, you can. Here are the five things we're going to pray for this week. And again, you can do this in two minutes. You can do it in the morning, your fasting time, the morning and evening. It's five things, right? One of them is for the opportunity and the courage to love someone how God loves them this week. Say, Lord, I don't know who you're going to put in my path today. Would you help me love them? The coworker that I'm going to avoid, give me the courage to talk to them. The person I'm going to try to rush past through, would you give me the patience to spend time with them? What would it look like for me to love one person well today? You could pray for holiness, a desire for holiness and living a life that honors God. What we talked about today, instead of trying to do it in your own effort, would you ask the Spirit, God, would you help me want these things? And would you help me walk in these things? Uh, for one person in your, in your life who does not yet know Jesus, just one person this week, every day, 30 seconds, God, would you help me play whatever part you have, or would your spirit reveal yourself to him this week? For one personal need or desire you have, of course, you can do as many as you want, but just pray for one thing. Here's what I've learned. Oftentimes, we get really frustrated with God because we want something that he has not given us. Even what we want is good, and then we've only prayed for it twice. Like, we haven't actually wrestled with the Lord. It's a whole side point. I'm not going to get into it now. But when you read the Old Testament, it is very clear that God is actually inviting his people to wrestle with him, to get angry with him, to see that he actually wants to do what they're asking him to do. But it has to be more than just, I asked for it once, it didn't happen, so God must not care. So I would encourage you, one thing. And then the last thing, number five, express to the Lord one thing you're thankful for. One thing. Take this card two minutes a day or longer, but two minutes a day. Fast in some way and seek the Lord, and we can seek him communally together. And this will help us not focus on our kingdom, but on his. Because again, we can spread God's kingdom, or we can spread our kingdom, but not both. And pursuing the Lord and asking him to be with us is a great way to start.